topologically, I can take a soft shell taco yep. and fold the edges over the top. Sure. I now effectively have a burrito, which is much easier to argue is a sandwich. And I have not changed the topology of the taco at no, all. So, so actually, I'm going to disagree with you on that. Because a, a burrito, right, you have closed ends on the cylinder. <laughs> Hey everybody, you're listening to Quant Talk. Uh, it's a podcast dedicated to interesting topics in quantitative finance. This podcast is run by Quantopian, a Boston-based company that inspires smart people everywhere to write investment algorithms. If you are interested in learning more or listening to our podcasts as they come out, along with all sorts of other content that we produce, please follow us on social media. We're at Quantopian at most places. And we'll do our best to notify you as we produce more podcasts and more content. Today on Quant Talk, I'm going to sit down and chat with Quantopian senior engineer Scott Sanderson um, about using Python to construct elegant APIs uh, that provide tools and encourage good use of those tools. Um, some of the specific issues we'll discuss include how to serve different data uh, based on when you're querying the data, which is a really interesting problem in quant finance, um, and in general, how he thinks about uh, APIs on the platform and uh, some interesting bonus at the end involving tacos. Hey guys, quick disclaimer. Um, I'm recording the podcast today. I'm Delaney McKenzie. I work on a bunch of different stuff at Quantopian and, and uh, you know, increasingly less academic stuff these days. Uh, transition that off to uh, Max Marganot. He's ideally going to be the regular host of this podcast, but uh, unfortunately on vacation right now. Um, so, you know, I stepped in for this one, but I think in the future uh, we're going to have more Max. Um, in the meantime, please feel free to uh, contact us, tweet us on social media to suggest future topics, to complain violently about stuff that we said in the podcast, whatever you want to do. Um, and otherwise, we'll get started. All right, I'm here with Scott Sanderson. He's a senior engineer at Quantopian. Um, and uh, I've had a lot of interesting conversations in the office with Scott in the past, so I thought that he'd be a pretty good candidate for today's episode. Um, so I guess, first of all, uh, because I was lazy and didn't prepare an intro for Scott, Scott, <laughs> what's your background and what do you do at Quantopian? Uh, thank you for having me, Delaney, in this uh, you know, exciting, very robust sound studio. Absolutely. We sound great. Yeah, we do. Um, so my, my Quantopian story is uh, a little bit interesting. So my, my background was I studied mathematics and philosophy at Williams College, which is a small liberal arts college in northwestern Massachusetts. Um, and I didn't actually do any computer science until uh, halfway through my junior year. And then the computer science department at Williams has what, what I like to call these like gateway drug courses where they come in and teach you or like trick you into doing computer science because you're interested in well, something but, else. But this is the opposite of most departments which have the weeder courses, right? Yeah, well, they, they might have those later, but here okay. they, they start and they just want to want to get you in. They want to get you excited about doing something. So uh, one of the professors who taught graphics teaches this intro course, which is uh, game design. And it's, it's actually cross-listed as an art class. And it's like you analyze board games and you look at like visual assets, you do all these kinds of things. And then at the end, they teach you like some simple Java programming and you do like some game stuff with that. And so I did that and that got me really excited and interested in programming. And then uh, that summer I met Foss, who is the CEO of Quantopian. Um, Foss's brother was coaching wrestling with my brother at a private school in Newton, which is where I grew up. Um, and Foss was, was sort of working on the original prototype for Quantopian out of his, out of his garage, basically. It was like a Rails app 
you know, very, very simple, very, very early stages. And he was looking for students or people with mathematical backgrounds, but not necessarily finance backgrounds to try it out and sort of tell them if they thought this idea had any kind of legs to it. Um, so I met Foss for coffee and we talked, we got along really well. And so I ended up being sort of the original alpha tester for Quantopian uh, in the very early days. days. So I like to, to brag about the fact that I have Quantopian user ID number two. Oh, um, damn. Yeah. I actually Foss, didn't even know that. Yeah, actually, sorry, I have number three. Foss has one and two, but I have number three. Ugh. So when we did the, the like, 10,000, when we did the 100,000 users thing, and I told you, like, what number you were, I had number three, which was pretty sweet. Um, so can we say that you are to blame for all of the product's flaws because you had the first the first touch on the product? Pro- probably not for that, but later on, you probably can, but I think that's unrelated to, to my, my earliness here. Um, so anyway, so I sort of continued to use and sort of play with Quantopian um, in its early stages. And then because I had gotten interested in computer science, I took a bunch more computer science courses back at Williams. Um, And then in the summer of 2012, I interned at Quantopian when by that point it was a four person company. So it was Foss and Jean Burdesh, who's now our CTO and another engineer. Um, And they were sort of working on building out sort of the proper Quantopian platform. and I actually like remember when I when I first joined, we didn't even have an office yet. We were just all on Skype meetings, talking from like our kitchen tables all over the place. And we moved in maybe two weeks into that internship, um, and I I worked on features like adding support for logging to the platform. So previously, you would run your algorithm, and either it would complete and you'd get a result back, or it would crash and you would get no information about why it crashed. So you would just stare at your algorithm and try to sort of intuit what had what might have gone wrong. Um, so you can imagine that wasn't a super great user experience. So the first project that I worked on was was making it so that you could actually like get information back out of your algorithm, which was which was a nice feature. Um, and I will say that like we're in a state now <laughs> where it's like we also have you know the research environment and we have a debugger. And I I actually can't even like really imagine like the dark ages in which <laughs> you just wouldn't even have logging at yeah. all. So yeah, I so can appreciate that that. that. that was a fun project. Um, but that was cool. So like, and that was, I think because it was such a small company and I was at such an early stage um, and I felt like that was such a big improvement to the product, like doing, doing a summer internship in engineering, a lot of times you don't get to sort of really like shape the, the structure of the project. And as a part of that, I actually like did a lot, a lot of like low level sort of foundational design work in Zipline, which is the framework that we still use to write Quantopian. So that experience for me was a really positive one where I got to feel like I had this strong sense of ownership of a project and I felt like I got to make a big impact on it. So I basically left that internship thinking, this is what I want to do. I want to do, I want to be uh, a software engineer. So I ended up going back, did uh, a whole bunch more engineering. Um, but so I said all that. And then what actually I ended up doing was I got into the software engineering really late and I was interested in seeing kind of what the landscape was. And I wanted to try, you know, different kinds of engineering to see how I felt about it. So I actually ended up taking a job at a video game studio for about a year. Um, working there as a little small uh, studio in Cambridge called Demiurge Studios, which was uh, bought by Sega maybe two or three years uh, ago. Um, that was actually a great experience. I, I loved working there. I like I love games. I love talking with people and being around people who are excited about games. Um, but what I found when I was doing that is I, I missed the, the work that I'd done at Quantopian, and I felt like I had sort of sense of ownership and a sense of uh, this like desire to sort of see the project through to completion. So after about a year there, I actually left and came back to Quantopian. So I've been back at Quantopian for since spring of 2014. So a little over three, three and a half years now. Um, 
And in that time, I've sort of grown to be, my primary role is uh, sort of designing our uh, user-facing research and backtesting APIs. So there's a whole bunch of engineering work that happens on Quantopia, and a lot of it isn't super visible to users. So the main thing that things that people interact with are like the front end and the, like the Quantopian website itself, which I don't do a lot with. And then the IDE where you can write trading algorithms and those trading algorithms have different kinds of data exposed to them and they can place orders in different kinds of ways. There's all this stuff you can do or in the research environment where you can pull in and mix and match and use all the powerful scientific Python libraries. So those, I don't work much on the website. I'm sort of in charge of, uh, the user-facing APIs and kind of the algorithm platform and the research platform. Got it. I mean, one of the big things that I found consistent is that uh, quant finance, I mean, it's probably no surprise to most people who are listening, but quant finance is a very secretive field sure. uh, by and large. And, um, you know, to an extent, it makes sense why you would want to be secretive. Um, one of the consequences is that a lot of times there's kind of this uh, approach to quant finance from people who have never worked in the field. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the issues faced by, you know, those people who have never worked in the field is they don't have the luxury of kind of like all the problems that have previously been solved, right? Sure. So thinking about it from a research or like a mathematical perspective, you always want to stand on the shoulders of giants as much as possible. You want to rely on previously done work as much as possible. Sure, you're not yeah, reinventing the, the, the wheel all the time. You know, the, the best proof when you're doing mathematics is like two lines and then and then theorem from chapter seven, which we just did, right? You don't, you don't actually want to do any new work. You want to do the smallest amount of work possible to translate your new problem into a problem that somebody else already solved. Right. For. Well, the best proof is when you're pretty sure that it's true, but you can't <laughs> figure it out. So you just say we leave it as an exercise to the reader. Sure. Um, but that's, in, that's Quantopian right there, right? We so we solve all the sort of standard problems, and we say we're going to leave as an exercise to the reader the writing of the algorithm. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, uh, but uh, but yeah. So I, I guess like one of the things uh, that's interesting is like oftentimes there's a lot of like like you were saying, like kind of invisible under the surface problems that sure. come up that you wouldn't even realize until you had not only built the system, but built really good testing and monitoring in infrastructure for the system. So sure. like, are there examples of like things that you found, bugs that you faced in the past that you're just like, wow, I would never have expected that to be something I would have to worry about, you know, before working in, in, in finance? Yeah, so there's, uh, it's, it's interesting because it's hard to like, bring myself out of the current mindset to think about what problems I, there's problems that you sort of get beat into your head that you have to care about that I think most people don't initially. So taking myself back to like problems that I didn't think about a lot prior to this. So like probably, probably the biggest and most obvious one is the fact that there's like, there's basically no universal standard symbology for assets. So like if you have financial data, You've got, you know, you've got prices of things, or you've got market caps, you've got shares, you've got any kind of data that you want to associate with some assets. Someone needs to tell you for each data point you have what asset it goes with. And sort of amazingly to me, there's no single standard way to talk about assets. So you have QSIPs and you have ISINs and you have CDALs and you have tickers, but ticker, and the other thing that's insane is that none of these are consistent over time. So like a given stock will change its QSIP or it'll change its ticker or it'll like split into two companies, but then one of the companies will like reacquire the previous company for tax reasons. There's like, there's a lot of like incidental human created complexity that I think is often basically like, there's a lot of weird corporate actions that we have to deal with that, that mostly have to do with, I think restructurings that are based on tax reasons. But like, 
Uh, I remember the other day we were trying to figure out why we had some pricing anomaly with a particular asset where there's like a particular day where suddenly the prices were all messed up. And we were looking at it and it was, we were trying to figure out like what, what even happened to this company? So what had happened was this one company had created a new share class. It, was, it had A and B shares and they created C shares. The C, the C shares were trading at one penny and they traded for like three days and then that C share stopped existing. Um, and then in the meantime, the company like changed tickers twice. So like all huh. these things together happened, and basically what it turned out had happened was that this company is a company that makes like Lando Lakes butter. It's like a dairy okay. products company, and they were spinning out their frozen foods uh, like sub business into a separate company or something. So they had like they had all these dairy products, but they were like splitting up the company into separate dairy products verticals, which. I guess it's somehow better for the investors. I wasn't really sure. But so like one of the things that they did was they did like a seven to one split. So they created a bunch of more shares of of the new company. But then one of the things that happens when you when you split a, a stock is there's some sort of remainder left over where you could do like a seven to one split, but you had, you know, the number of shares you hold was like seven mod seven plus three. So you sure. have like three left over. We have to give you cash. We somehow have to like compensate you for that. And so they had like spun out this extra share class that they they paid a dividend in the remaining amount in this like one cent share class instead of giving people cash, which I and then they bought all those back immediately, huh? Which I I assume was like somehow better for tax reasons or something. That's the only thing reason I can imagine. Either that or someone just like hates financial engineers and didn't want us to deal with it. Huh. And wanted someone to have to deal with that. Like another running joke that I have with one of the other engineers here is that if we ever start a company and it's publicly traded, we're going to get the ticker null just to mess with software engineers. So. Well, um, I think what's interesting is that uh, I know of a lot of existing kind of quant anomalies that basically try, try to bet on dishonesty in some sort of way. Sure. And so like... That, yeah, I mean, that's another thing that we've sort of talked about is, like, if you could if you could get really, really good at managing, like, anomaly or, like, managing these weird corporate actions, just, like, keeping your data consistent in them, like, I would imagine that would act, that could, like, potentially confer some sort of, like, value to a strategy. If you could know that reliably you're better at handling ticker changes or better at handling QSIP changes than your competitors, then, like, I would, I would not be surprised to learn that people might like mistrade QCIPs, for example, or like mistrade, you know, companies that have recently changed sure. tickers or mistrade companies that have recently undergone splits. Oh yeah, no, like one of the major things about quant finance is that there's so much attention on basically like trying to forecast where stocks are gonna go. Sure. And really that's only once like one piece of a, you know, a, a trading algorithm that makes money, a trading system that makes money. That's, that's usually referred to as the alpha component sure. of like trying to predict where stocks are going to go. Yeah. That, and then after you've predicted where they're going to go, there's like a ton of stuff. For instance, how accurate was your data in the first place? And was you're making these decisions, yep. how accurately can you classify and match stocks back to where, you know, what, where they actually trade? Yep. Um, especially if you're trading on multiple exchanges. Uh, and, uh, you know, then how do you actually trade? Because, you know, one of the things that um, you'll probably talk about a little bit more later, but, you know, uh, I think is really important in quant finance is this notion of like algorithms are really kind of state machines in which, you know, you start with information about the world, a current portfolio, you make a decision about where the world is going to go. And from that, you derive 
a new optimal portfolio that you want to be in and, and, and you take the difference between your new optimal portfolio and the old portfolio and that's what the trades you want to make. But sometimes you can't make all those trades sure. and you have to decide what do you do in that case. And so like there's a lot of different components and adding value to any one of those components is, is, is you know, that it's just as good as any of the other components in many cases. So whereas like there tends to be this, you know, I think over-focus on uh, the alpha side, and I say overfocus, but like, you know, really Quantopian tries to make users able to purely focus on the alpha side by um, like building out support for all the other components. Right. You know, that said, like, if you were able to construct exactly like you're saying, you know, something that was able to trade two or 3% more reliably sure. for an asset manager who's trading a billion dollars, yeah. you know, that's a significant chunk of change that they're going to recoup on that. Yep. Yeah. Another thing, actually, this sort of what, what you were just saying kind of jogged my memory on the question you were asking about, like problems that I wouldn't have even thought about before I started working here. And uh, one of the big ones, which comes back to that question of, okay, you've, you have some strategy, you've evaluated it, you think that it looks good. Um, one of the things that's, that can be tricky about that is keeping track, not just of the information that you know, but when you learned that information, which is really important for evaluating whether you, you, know, you might have some model, which is really good at predicting you know, some, some aspect of the market, but it's relying on data that you couldn't, you could never have actually had at the point where it was trading. So like high frequency trading is kind of the most extreme example of this, right? Where you're there trading on edges whose, you know, half-life or their time span is on the order of milliseconds to microseconds. But even things like just having accurate data, right? Like companies restate their uh, parts of their financial statements all the time because there's clerical errors or because someone did the accounting wrong or because some corporate action has actually like materially affected those things. So if you just have like a single static view of, you know, some time series of values for every asset every day, one of the questions you need to be careful about if you're doing things like backtesting and simulation is when did I learn each of those pieces of information and did I have different pieces of information at different points in time? You know, I might, I might have thought that Apple's market cap, you know, in 2014 quarter one was, you know, $8, and then later learned that it was actually $8 million or $8 billion. And depending on when I learned that, that affects the kinds of strategies that I could have traded that used that information. And so one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking carefully about and a lot of the complexity that comes in our, our sort of backend systems, and it's kind of hidden complexity, like the goal of this is that the user shouldn't have to care about that because they're, they're just at some point in their algorithm, they ask for a bunch of data and we give you the, the best known data that we had as of that time. But one of the interesting things about that is that that data, the data for a given asset on a given day can change depending on when you're asking the question and modeling that well and doing that computation efficiently is a really interesting challenge. Yeah. And I, I mean, in general, you, there's a lot of, a lot of this falls into the category of what's known as uh, look ahead bias sure. in your data, which is exactly like you're saying when, you know, you have a piece of data and the date that it's listed as, you know, as of mm -hmm. is wrong. It's it's earlier than you would have actually gotten it. Um, a classic example is, you know, earnings come out on whenever, let's say like the first, I actually, I, I never remember exactly when they come there, out. But there is no standard structure for those. Let's say it comes out in the first. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, you know, the data vendor takes three days to actually process that information and get it to you. Um, but they still list it as like, this is the company's earnings as of the first. Well, that's true. That is what the company's earnings were. Right. But the, it's you only would have learned that and been able to trade on it three days later. Yep. And oftentimes, you actually will have a lot of alpha, a lot of potential to trade in these environments because 
nobody's getting the data until three days later. So right. there's three days where like the price hasn't corrected. And if you looked back historically and ran a back test naively, you'd be like, oh my God, this thing is amazing. It makes so much money. Right. Um, yeah, because nobody else has that information because no, you, you included would not have had that information. And, yeah. um, but that said, I, I think this is a fairly good and unplanned segue into one of the other questions I was gonna ask, which is what what is pipeline and, and why is pipeline? Sure, so uh, Pipeline is a feature that we added to Zipline and to the Quantopian platform uh, in like late 2015, I wanna say. And it's basically an API for, right, for doing a particular kind of computation easily and efficiently. And that particular kind of computation is a uh, cross-sectional daily large universe rolling window computation. So I'm gonna break down each of those pieces a little bit. So uh, by cross-sectional, what I mean is, this is some calculation that's looking at a large number of assets, often sort of all of the assets that we know about uh, over the universe. So if you're trading US equities, this would be on the order of like eight to 10,000 stocks on a given day. Or if you've done some pre-filtering, maybe it's on the order of like, you know, two to 3,000 stocks. Um, uh, so the idea is if you're doing a trading strategy and you're doing sort of like a long short equity strategy uh, or you're doing some sort of like momentum based strategy or something like that, um, a lot of the times the sort of core guts of your algorithm essentially looks like this. So you're going to say uh, every day uh, I'm going to or maybe, you know, every minute or something like that. But in this case, where the assumption here is that you're doing something every day. So every day we're going to wake up and we're going to ask for the last n days worth of data for a bunch of different data points. So I can ask for the last n days worth of prices and the last n days worth of uh, market cap and the last n days worth of uh, you know, like earnings values, all, all kinds of different data. Um, so I'm going to say every day for every asset that is in my universe, uh, I'm going to ask for all of these, all these sort of trailing windows of data. So you should have in your head these kind of like computations working on these big 2D grids of data where uh, along the columns you might have every asset and along the rows you might have every date. Um, and then ultimately the question that we're always trying to get to is uh, what portfolio do I want to hold, right? Which is, which ultimately means reducing every asset that you care about to a single number, which is the number of shares that you want to hold. Um, often you end up sort of thinking about this in terms of like percentage values rather than discrete share counts. So you might say, all right, I've got, you know, $10 million or $100 million in this algorithm. How am I going to allocate that across uh, some number of positions? And so what I ultimately need to be able to do is take these big sort of 2D grids of data and reduce them down in some way into a single number each day for each asset, which is how much of that asset do I want to hold? Um, and so what, what Pipeline does is it's this sort of expression-based uh, system that, that provides an interface to this data. So you can say things like, I want to take you know, a 30 day moving average and a 90 day moving average and add them together and then look at the percent change. So you can do sort of like, uh, a lot of people sort of look, see it as like doing sort of simple technical based indicators, but that's that's actually sort of a, a pretty simplistic use case for it. And you can actually end up doing a lot more interesting, complex things. You can say, I wanna take all these assets and, uh, you know, say run some machine learning algorithm on these blocks of data, or I can, take all these assets and you know, z-score them grouped by sector. So one of, the, one of the ideas here is that we have different kinds of data and there's sort of an algebra on the different kinds of data that we have. So we might have numerical data, which sort of, sort of represents the raw values. 
Uh, we might have Boolean or a sort of true and false values, which allows me to do things like filter down to just assets that meet some criterion, right? So I might want to filter down to assets that only have, that only are in sort of the top n percentile of trading volume or the top n percentile by market cap, say. So I can use that to kind of do different selections on the data. And then probably the most interesting one is we have this notion of a classifier or what, what uh, sort of data scientists might call a categorical variable where I can say, uh, I want to bucket assets by some labeling scheme. So I might say something like, I want to take all the assets and group them by their sector and then calculate, say, the average or like the their, their variance above the mean uh, for each asset within each sector. Or I might do the same thing by like grouping them by deciles of market cap and do that. So you have this sort of composable, flexible transformation language for describing these computations on these trailing windows. And at the end of the day, what you ultimately get spat out with is this one single number for every asset. And then you feed that into the other piece of your algorithm, which is how do I actually execute that? So at a high level, uh, one of the things that I've talked about in a couple talks at various places is that a good API encourages you to decompose a problem into sort of uh, separable subproblems. So, so in this case, for a lot of the kinds of strategies that we're interested in, a nice way to do that decomposition is there's a portion where you're sort of fetching data and transforming it and reducing it and performing these computations on it uh, until you finally reach the point where you have sort of a target portfolio of assets. And then there's a sec, or maybe, maybe you don't have a target portfolio, but maybe you have some like vector of expected returns or some ranking scheme that tells you that, you know, I think this asset's going to do better than this asset. So I might not know concretely, I think this asset's going to make money, but I might think, I think this asset's going to do better than this asset. And it turns out that that's often enough if you're doing uh, long short portfolios. Um, and, so and just to kind of throw in a quick tangent here, but like, I, or, or not even tangent really, but like, I think it's important to understand like, that's kind of like the core motivation for these type of strategies, mm -hmm. which are known as generally like cross-sectional equity, long short equity, relative value equity. There's various different names. Mm -hmm. um, but the important point that I think is is key to get here, and we've talked about this a lot in other materials. Uh, I think, you know, we went through this a lot in our, in our Chat with Traders podcast series, but uh, relative value is the key point because, um, you know, you as a, I, I never, do you consider yourself a mathematician, mathematical training? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think I, I, I don't know if I would call myself a mathematician, but I definitely feel like I approach problems from a mathematical sure. mindset, right? I just talked about like the algebra of, right. of composable computations that I can do on, you know, trailing time series data. Like, right. One of the favorite things about Scott is that <laughs> he will express like day-to-day -day concepts in terms of like algebraic topology and then... <laughs> You know, there's all sorts of interesting consequences, yeah. but um, no, what, one of the key things is that oftentimes uh, one of the ways in which to make a problem easier to solve is to relax the specificity of the claim that you are trying to make. And sometimes that makes the problem harder to solve, sure. but oftentimes it makes it easier. Um, and in this case, that's generally the, the motivation is that, you know, it's really, really, really hard to predict the percent return that an asset is going to get. In sure. the next day, month, especially year. over long time horizons, right? Like, yes. I, I think if you're doing HFT stuff, I think you, it seems likely to me, or it seems more plausible to me that you you might be able to have some statistical degree of confidence that I think this asset is going to go up two cents in the next second or something sure. like that. And but when you're talking about things on the time scale of like we, you know, days to weeks to months, there's so many other 
exogenous variables that are hard to control for. That Absolutely. Giving an exact estimate is very hard. Yeah, there's just more noise and the more time you have it to compound, the more, you know, the more error you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, basically like predicting the percent return from any asset, uh, you know, over anything except maybe an incredibly, incredibly short time window mm-hmm. is like basically like near impossible, I would say. Um, and uh, instead what you can do is say, okay, well, I accept the fact that I can't really predict percent return. And what I want to do is uh, say that this asset A will go up more than this asset B. Right. That's the that's the prediction I'm trying to make. Because if you can do that across many assets, you can effectively get a ranking of assets. Mm-hmm. And then you can implement this, this long short portfolio style mm-hmm. in which you go long the stuff on the top, short the stuff on the bottom, and then ideally, if they obey the predictions that you made, the stuff on the top will go up more. So you'll make more money on your long positions than you lose on your short positions. And, and that's kind of the, I think, inherent motivation for these kind of strategies, which I think is important to understand. But I, I yeah, want to get back to what some of the stuff you were well, talking yeah, about. Well, yeah. So, and I, I would add to that. So one of, one of the ideas is that predicting returns specifically is hard. So it might be easier for us to predict a relative value than an absolute value. And the other nice thing about that formulation is it means that you don't care what the market does, right? If yeah. I, if all I'm trying to do is say this asset's going to go up more than this asset, they can both go down, and as long as, or they can both go up, but as long as the relative positioning stays the same, my my strategy does okay. So that's that's one of the other things, right? Is that you might not be able to predict what the market's going to do, but you might want to be able to predict some relative relationship between two particular assets or between, you know. And buckets of assets. Right. And, and taken to the extreme, you could just classify assets as going up or going down mm-hmm. and basically just have like a binary prediction on, on the portfolio and, sure. and, and long all the stuff you thought was going to go up and short all the stuff you thought was going to go down. Right. Like that's kind of, each strategy may exist somewhere in the middle of that kind of range, but usually you exist closer, I think, to the binary classification than you do to the absolute percentage prediction. Yeah, I, th- I think it depends a lot on the kinds of data that you're looking at and the amount of as- the number of assets you're looking at and how specific your model gets. There's a lot of parameters. Yeah, that. and and the, I think the last important point to make here is that whereas a lot of the examples I, I think that we 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 brought up um, and what you know the examples we may, br- may bring up as well in the future here are going to be like maybe talking about like simple things like averaging over historical prices or something like that. Again, like this is stuff which basically really doesn't have much alpha left over it anymore because um, this is just so well studied. Like everybody has pricing data. It's, it's just so much harder to detect any sort of consistent pattern or anomaly in price data that hasn't already been priced in and arbitraged out. So mm-hmm. in general, like from you know a recommendation standpoint, um, you know, Quantopian always recommends to its users that you try to look for interesting predictive models in you know alternative data sets or data sets that you know, may not have been as well studied or, you know, may, may are more likely to have some kind of alpha in there because, uh, or interactions between alternative data sets and pricing data sets. But, but just going for trying to predict prices using prices is kind of like trying to predict future temperature using temperature, like probably not all that useful, right? You need other variables to predict future temperature. You need pressure, you need, you know, which direction the wind is blowing, the temperature several towns over. So you can sure. kind of figure out where, where the, you know, how the flow is going to go. So I think it's just important to understand, like, you know, even if we talk about, you know, like pricing and there's a lot of other stuff that usually needs to go into a good predictive model. But I I wanted to just drill in quickly to one of the points that's key here, which is um, this notion of 
I kind of like to think of it as like not who's asking, but when's asking, Mm -hmm. um, which is very key in in any kind of API like this. So can you like elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So like I said, one one of the things that you care about a lot when you're trying to avoid biases or even when you're just trying to model knowledge correctly is uh we we often think of there's sort of three components to any piece of data so we have um the as of date which is kind of the date that the data was created or the date that the data is about in some sense um you have the value itself right so so to take a concrete example say we're, we're we have market cap data so every asset has market capitalization, which is the sum of the number of shares outstanding times the price. And it's roughly how many dollars worth of that company is floating around in the universe. Um, and companies state this value periodically. They file filings with the SEC, I think. I don't know. Some, someone. Yeah, someone, someone, someone keeps track of this Bob data. Bob in the corner accepts yeah. them. Um, and so, and, but often, you know, the market cap, the market cap changes and then the company files something and there's a delay between when the when the market cap changed because they issued new shares or something like that and when they actually reported that value um so we talk about the the as of date would be the date that the market cap actually changed like there's some corporate action like that or or probably market cap's a little bit of a misleading one because the price fluctuates every day so shares outstanding is maybe a better better example where shares outstanding is mostly static over time but periodically a company might buy back shares or it might uh release new shares because they're trying to finance something or something like that um so you know the company will issue new shares outstanding say on january 1st but then uh they don't they don't file that or we as as receivers of the data don't learn about that filing until say uh you know january 4th so there's there's a two or three day window between when the data was created and when we learned about the data so uh my my sort of favorite heuristic for thinking about this is that the as of date is the data birthday is the day that the data was actually created and then the, the timestamp is the data friend anniversary so this is when you became friends with the data and you learned about the data got it got it that's i actually have not heard those definitions before that this is this is how we appeal to young people today so yeah I, um, I believe I coined the term data friendiversary. Friendiversary. Yeah. I heard the term from Foss, our CEO, yesterday. I heard the term friendie. 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 Is this a, like a, a friendly NDA? Well, it's when you trust your friends, so you don't need an NDA. I see. Friendie. Yeah. So, I, so I this like, is the opposite of like the Silicon Valley stereotype, where like your friend sits you down in a coffee shop and makes you sign the NDA before he'll tell you about his cool new startup idea. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which you probably shouldn't do, by the way. Yes, I, um, I think that is considered a faux pas. I, I recommend either both not making your friends sign NDAs and also not signing contracts without fully reading them and, and consulting a, a professional lawyer. Sure. Um, that said, but yeah, so like as an example for shares outstanding, like t- explain, so like in a back test, yep. you know, as the back test is running along, like what exactly would happen? Yeah, so... Say you, we have some API, you're using the pipeline API, and you're fetching, say, the last you know, 100 days worth of shares outstanding because you think there's some interesting signal to, be, signal to be had in when that number changes, right? Companies, issue, companies often issue more uh, shares because they're trying to raise money, which you might think is good because you know, they're, they're raising money to invest in something else, or you might think, like, oh, crap, they're running out of money, and so they need to issue new shares. So you might think there's some kind of signal in that data. Um, so you're looking at sort of this trailing history of that. And so uh, 
the way that this gets modeled is ev on a given day, you're gonna fetch the last 100 days worth of this data. Um, and we need to decide when you, when you make that query, what, what part of that data to show you. And so the way that would work, so the example we gave was the company's, the company's shares outstanding changes on the first but then we don't learn about that value until the fourth. So we want to model that fact in a back test. So if you're, say, say you're before the first, so you're like in December sometime and you ask for, for the trailing window of shares outstanding, obviously we're not going to show you the new value because we haven't even gotten there and it wouldn't be relevant. Um, so then the interesting thing ha that happens is say we get to January 1st, we get to January 2nd. So now in real time, the company's shares outstanding value has changed. Um, and we, we actually know that, like we, we have that fact in our database, but we also know that we didn't learn about that value until the fourth. So if you on the second ask for this trailing history of shares outstanding, then we're still gonna show you the old value at that point because we know that we didn't know about the new piece of information. And then when your back test finally gets to January 4th and we learn that piece of information, we'll, you'll ask for this window and then we'll retroactively update our view and say, oh, from this perspective, when you ask for the trailing history of shares outstanding, we'll tell you that from the first onward, it was the new value, um, which which might sort of, on the face of it, seem bad, right? Like it feels like we're withholding data from you. Like it's like why wouldn't why wouldn't you want to use the best possible data? And the thing to keep in mind here is that this is a simulation, right? And the point of doing a simulation is to understand how would my algorithm have actually performed with the data that was available to it at that time. So if we showed you data that wasn't available at that point then we could mis give you the mistaken impression that your algorithm is better than that is. And that's sort of like the classic failure mode of almost any trading algorithm. Like it's, it's way, way, way easier to write a trading algorithm that looks good in backtesting than it is to write one that actually performs well out of sample. And so you wanna be sort of as ruthless as possible in trying to weed out all the possible ways that an algorithm might look good but actually not be good. And one of the very common ways that that can happen is when you're looking at data before you actually would have had access to that data. Yeah, exactly. And, and in general, the other way to think about it is just like a backtest is to an extent, you know, it's a, it's a test. It's not a rigorous statistical test, but it's a test via which you are trying to gain information about future performance, right? Because at the end of the day, everything's a forecast, right? Like sure. the past is the past, it already happened, right? Sure. Like retrospective analysis is only useful in so that it can help you develop hypotheses or gain information about what may happen in the future. Yeah. Um, and so that's the important thing to remember about, you know, back tests is that the only reason you're running a back test is because you're trying to learn if an algorithm is going to continue to perform well in the future, not if it, if it would have performed well. So um, you do generally want to be pretty conservative in your assumptions about like, you know, is this thing going to work or is it not? And I think that this is a good example of being, you know, not only just accurate, but conservative and saying, you know, like you would not have gotten this data. Right. And if you're unsure, if you like, if maybe you would have gotten this data on the fourth, maybe on the fifth, say on the fifth, you know, because otherwise, again, you're, you're kind of, um, it's up to you, but to an extent you're, you're introducing, you know, basically potential inflation of, yep. of, of what your returns would have looked like. Yeah. So, and, and that's actually sort of an interesting point where you're trying to, where you're trying to decide when like, you're not actually sure exactly when you learn the data, you know, how, how to adjust that. So one of the interesting things about that is that we, uh, we have historical data going all the way back to 2002, but as a company, we've only existed since 2012 and say for like our fundamentals data, we've only had that since 2014. Um, so one of the interesting things we have to do is for the data that goes back through that historical period is try to like simulate this effect, right? And try to say, okay, based on, based on how we've received data in real time, 
when do we think we would have received data historically? So generally that means putting like a one to three day lag for certain kinds of fields. And we try to do sort of, th this is one of the few places where like the engineering team gets to do like data science-y things. You know, people often ask me if I'm giving a talk or I'm, I'm out sort of talking about like pandas or numpy stuff like, oh, do you, are you a data scientist? Like, do you do like statistics? Do you work in the Jupyter Notebook? And for the most part, no, like, I'm, I consider myself sort of solidly in the, the software engineering camp. Um, I use pandas and I use NumPy and these sort of scientific Python tools a lot, but most of what I use them for is sort of building systems to shuffle data around rather than to actually look at and analyze the data directly. But one of the times where we do get to do kind of data science -y stuff is for things like this where we're saying, okay, given, given the data and when we learned about it and all this information, how do we want to like simulate that in the past to make that a more accurate simulation of what we would have seen? No, I, I, I think it's, it's one of those subjects, which again, is just like so much more complicated than, than a lot of people realize just on the basis of them not having, you know, like seen the real consequences of trying to run a strategy that's based on you know, look ahead data yep. and, and seeing what happens. Yep. Um, and, and, and the answer is often not good things. Yeah. Uh, well, and then like we've had, you know, we, we have all this external data on, on the store, right? So Quant Quantopian does uh, sort of have vendors who come and they sell their data on the platform. We sell it for what I, what I think is a pretty reasonable and like often a price where we're basically breaking even or not even breaking even on the engineering effort of bringing the data into the platform because we think it's in, ultimately in our interest and in the interest of the community to have access to these other data sets. Um, but like you can, a lot of these are like machine learning model data sets, right? Where you can look at them and like, you can, you can do some analysis and be like, here's the point where that model went out of sample, right? And you can see the difference between, you know, when you were training on the in-sample data and when you're training on the out-of-sample data. And you, you hope that it's still good enough on the out-of-sample data to be, to be useful, but you can often see, like you can see that in the data, uh, you know, the effect of trying to train a model on a specific set of data. No, absolutely. Um, I did have it here in, in my list of questions to, to ask about optimization, but I'm thinking that we're going to have to put that one in, in, a, in a future podcast. Sure. I think that one really does, like, <laughs> I was thinking we can kind of, like, tease it a little bit, yeah. but, I mean, we really, really need to, I think, spend a lot more time talking about that. I will say that um, one of the uh, APIs, which I believe has been kind of an experimental beta stage for a little while, but yep. usable on the platform, yep is optimize and my very very quick pitch for that is <laughs> you absolutely should do it and it really just makes, makes algorithm structure just so elegant um to the point that actually uh i think recently the wall street journal printed quantopian code using the optimize api yep. and it really what it's saying is do a mathematical optimization process where based on some predictions of where a stock is going to move AKA the alpha, sure. like based on predictions of where, where a bunch of stocks are going to move and therefore, you know, where they're going to move informs what, how much you want to buy of each of them. And Scott produced a really interesting notebook on the forums, which shows like, oh, well, if naively you do that, then you're just going to put all of your money into the thing that you expect to go up the most. Right. And then so you have to start putting in risk constraints or optimization constraints, which say, well, you can't overinvest in one stock or you have to be an equal amount of dollars invested long and short. And so kind of all investing to an extent boils down to this process of optimize 
expected out of sample returns mm -hmm. subject to risk constraints and every investor has different risk constraints so some investors may not care that they're long exposed to the market and some investors may be very adamant that they don't have exposure to this country or something like that you know sure. so there's every investor has different risk constraints but everything boils down to that and i think it'll be a really interesting topic to talk about uh, in the future, we did talk about it a bit, I believe, in in uh, a podcast we did with Chat with Traders. Um, but I'm I'm looking forward to the chance to get to talk about it more, especially as we we roll out this API. It's actually it's becoming like fully fully functional, fully released into the world. You're kicking it out of the nest, Scott. Yeah, I'm working on documentation for it right now. So we're basically code complete on on releasing it. So that should be released soon. You know, scare quotes soon. <laughs> Uh, is, wait, scare quotes? Scare, scare, scare yeah. quote, you quotes? You have that phrase? I have not. Yeah, that's... Scare, air, air quotes, but scare Also quotes. scare quotes sometimes. Okay, but that's like when you're scared. No, I don't... I think it's the same word. I think it's just diff sometimes, sometimes people say that. Because I'm imagining it's like scare quotes is like air quotes, but when you're scared about the thing that you're saying. I don't know. All right, I'm going to have to look into this. Sure, this is, yeah. I have not heard I've, that. That is definitely a, a phrase that I have seen. Hey, guys, quick disclaimer... Um, what follows is about 10 minutes of fairly involved debate about algebraic topology of soft versus hard-shelled tacos and, and what constitutes a sandwich and what constitutes constituting and classifying a sandwich. So uh, have you tuned in for more of the you know, quant finance specific stuff? This may not be for you, but uh, you know, I suspect some of you may be interested to uh, to hear Scott's opinion on the matter. So, uh, if so, please uh, please enjoy. Okay, um, in in the last in the last portion here, um, this is based on some classic as they a classic uh, pre pre podcast banter. Sure. Um, I always one of the things that annoys me the most is when like on the radio or in podcasts, they're like, oh, we were talking about this before we went on air. Yeah. And I'm like, tell me what you were talking about. And you know, cause it's always like, it sounds interesting. So I wanted to, to give, give the users a, a small <laughs> glimpse into Scott's mind here. Um, I, don't know so, they, I don't know if they want that glimpse. So question. Yep. Hot dog. Yep. Sandwich or not sandwich. Hot, hot dog is a sandwich. Why? Because so, the the context for the this conversation was that there, there's a, a a meme floating around on Facebook of the sandwich alignment chart, and it tells you how basically how pres prescriptivist you are about whether certain things are sandwiches, and it's got two axes on it. So on one axis, you can be uh, like a, a structure uh, like conservative or liberal. On the other hand, you can be an ingredients conservative or liberal. So like. We have these canonical the terminology as rebel and purist. Rebel I and believe. purist, yes. Yeah, not, not use politically charged terms, I guess. So, uh, so like at the extreme example of of you know the purist is like you know a club sandwich is a sandwich like right. a ham and cheese. Like you got you got flat normal sandwich bread and meat and condiments and like lettuce. Those right. that is that is the only kind of thing that's a sandwich. And then basically at the opposite end of the the spectrum, you might say that. Anything that's sort of bread-ish with a filling is a sandwich. So the extreme one is the radical sandwich anarchist where a Pop-Tart is a sandwich. Right. And then in between, there's various various sort of gradations of this. So we, I and another Quantopian engineer and some of my friends were, were debating about this for, for a while the other day. So I, 
I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna paraphrase this by by saying that I'm I'm a strong anti-realist about sandwiches in general. I don't I don't think there's a fact of the matter about whether sandwiches correspond to some platonic ideal of in the sort of universe of concepts out there. I I this is where I get to put on my take off my mathematics hat and put on my philosophy hat and so that I I would say I think sandwich is sort of a family resemblance concept a la Wittgenstein where. You know, we have we have these canonical examples, and then we have this sort of family resemblance, and various things to various people's linguistic intuitions feel more or less like sandwiches. Uh, and what I was saying to to you before this is that we were we were having a relatively civil debate about this, and then we got to hot dogs, and you know, I myself and someone else said yes, I think a hot dog is a sandwich, and uh, my other coworker who's also a roommate, and the other person in this conversation said they didn't think a hot dog is a sandwich, and then. The last person said a hot dog's not a sandwich, but if you cut up the pieces of the hot dog, like the, like, the pieces like of the meat, slice it, yeah, like you slice it, it and, you, and you rotate them, then it right. becomes a sandwich. So and I, then I lost my I, shit. I want I want the users to imagine that you take a hot dog, you slice it, you know, against against the length, basically along the width, yeah, and then you get these little like slices with like a little like cylinder of hot dog, and then and then the bread surrounding the hot dog, yeah. And then it's and, like, and the claim is that s- somehow that rotation right top, process makes right it a sandwich. on the bottom, hot dog in the middle. Yeah. That's a sandwich. Well, I think this is even if you're still, you're still on a hot dog bun here. Right. Yeah. It's just that you've rotated it. But I, yeah, right. I, I have no intuition for why that feels more like a sandwich for people. But so then I think, I think the most diplomatic process we made was that we got to the point where everyone agreed that an open faced sandwich, despite the name, is not a sandwich. That okay. you need to have some sort of layer that's so one of the one of the key criteria is that a sandwich needs to be designed to be eaten with your hands, which okay. an open face sandwich defeats the purpose of. Um, you call it like a taco or something. Yeah, so t- taco was an interesting one. So in particular, here, here's a question for you. Uh, so one in general, what do you how do you feel about taco being a sandwich? Well, see, it depends on whether you fall in like the can you alter the shape right because like a lot of so i'm just asking for your your visceral gut reaction on whether you feel like a taco is a sandwich i I mean so i'm actually i'm also going to fall down here which i'm going to say i also kind of fall on the malformed debate side of the fence here where i think that in general classification is a heuristic often sure and that very few things in the world are one or the other sure and most of the time things are a combination of a bunch of other things sure and so like for any individual thing, I might say, think about it linear algebraically, right? Um, there's you've got these kind of like platonic eigenvectors, and I might say uh, a taco is like you know 40% sandwich, and or maybe maybe tacos the eigenvector. I don't know. I'd have to like you know split it out in my head, but I definitely yeah. see some sandwich in there, yeah. but definitely not majority sandwich. Sure. Yeah. So I, I the linear algebra. Uh sort of metaphor is an interesting one. I, I actually often think of ontology as, as point set topology, which is basically the study of mathematical surfaces in terms of ways of grouping points. Right. So you basically you can, it turns out in a very abstract set, you can talk about what it means for a function to be continuous, for example, in terms of whether or not pr- it preserves properties of how you group points in these ab- abstract right. spaces. And so What's interesting about this is you, you have a set of values like the real numbers or the, the integers or the complex numbers or whatever. And that by itself you can't talk about continuity on. But then you say we've got the real numbers with some topology put on them, which says basically here, here is a way of carving up the real numbers into what whether things are open and closed. So most of us learn about like open and closed intervals in like grade school at some point, and like you've got little square brackets or little roundy brackets for whether or not the endpoint counts. 
Um, but it turns out there's a much more sort of generalized sense in which you can talk about continuous functions in terms of open and closed sets. So I, so I tend to think about this as like, you know, the world just has stuff, right? There's no, there's no topology on the world. There's just, you know, there's just molecules, right? Or there's just, you know, pieces of plastic or there's just hot dogs that may or may not have been cut up and put adjacent to buns. And that by itself doesn't impose any categories, but then we impose this sort of conceptual topology on the world that we interact right. with. And then what's interesting is that you and I can disagree, like the, that topology sort of formed in social interactions with other people, right? So you and I, we both have sort of canonical examples of sandwiches, and then we have various other things that we're more or less likely to include in the, the sandwich group. Right. And uh, I think... You still I, haven't given me an answer on, on taco, though. Oh, I'm going to I'm gonna politician my way out of this, but... Um... <laughs> so, so here's the question I wanted to ask you on that is... Uh, I, so my, my opinion is that soft shell taco feels like definitely a sandwich to me. Hard shell taco, much less clear. Let me let me um, let me let me tell you my perspective on this. And I also want to just say, as like a, a final, and I know we're running out of time here, but like uh, where Scott is coming from in this is also there's kind of this similar notion in in uh, in mathematics of like uh, I always forget, I get it is is it topology? I always forget what field or discipline it falls under. With this notion of like if you have an object in n dimensional space, let's start mm -hmm. with three D. Sure. We take a sphere, yep. right? There's no way you can translate, rotate it, you know, tilt it. You can kind of move it around three D space as much as you want. Yep. It's still a sphere. Yep. And then you get into this other notion of like basically when you think of something, basically topology says like what shape is it? And yeah, so, so like, it's about know, like sort of the equivalence classes of surfaces under certain types of nice uh, transformations, right? Where I can squish something or I can rotate something. And it turns out you can actually like axiomatize that in a bunch of different ways. So you can talk about it in point set topology, which is about, you know, this ways of taking sets and carving them up. There's also algebraic topology, which is about like this like algebra of different ways like all of those different fundamental configurations actually correspond to like group structure which is right also and, I, and i will say that our podcast director angie is becoming increasingly more horrified at how far <laughs> this has gone off the rails but i will say my final point here i tend to agree with that because topologically I can take a soft shell taco yep. and fold the edges over the top sure i now effectively have a burrito which is much easier to argue is a sandwich. And I have not changed the topology of the taco at no, all. So, so actually, I'm going to disagree with you on that. Because a, a burrito, right, you have closed ends on the cylinder. Okay, we're out of <laughs> time. A, a taco, you have open ends on the cylinder. Those are actually we're, topologically distinct. We're out of time. So we're going to have to we're gonna have to end with me being right here. <laughs> but big thanks to Scott Sanderson for being our guest today. Uh, huge thanks to... Angie Petrozino for being our podcast director and in general producing these things. Um, and uh, just as another reminder, uh, I'm just recording today uh, in the absence of uh, Max Marganot, uh, who's going to be the regular host of the podcast going forward. Um, so until next time, please uh, tune in whenever we uh, get our next one out. Quintopian provides this presentation to help people write trading algorithms. It is not intended to provide any sort of investment advice. More specifically, the material is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer to sell, a solicitation to buy, or a recommendation or endorsement for any security or strategy, nor does it constitute an offer to provide investment advisory or other services by Quantopian. 
In addition, the content neither constitutes investment advice nor offers any opinion with respect to the suitability of any security or any specific investment. Quantopian makes no guarantees as to accuracy or completeness of the views expressed in the website. The views are subject to change and may have become unreliable for various reasons, including changes in market conditions or economic circumstances.